There are people who get up every day and work to protect us from toxic chemicals in our food, our water, and our air, in the products we buy, in the places we work, and in our homes. They devote their lives to preventing cancer, learning disabilities, and other harm, but they are mostly unknown and unheralded. They're Toxic Avengers, and you'll meet them here on the Toxic Avengers podcast. Welcome to episode 15 of the Toxic Avengers podcast. Thanks for joining. In this episode, we have part three of my interview with Ted Smith, founder and executive director of the Silicon Valley Toxics Coalition. In part three of our interview, we begin speaking about the train derailment and release of vinyl chloride in East Palestine, Ohio, that occurred in February. We discuss the difficulty of retaining institutional memory of toxic accidents and other incidents, and what that could mean for communities where new microchip plants may be built under the CHIPS Act. We talk about the long history of attempting to regulate the use of hazardous toxic solvents like TCE at the local, state, and federal levels, and the battles with companies over the extent of their cleanups of Superfund sites. We then discuss the Silicon Valley Toxic Coalition's partnering with environmental justice organizations in the Southwest as chip plants began to move to New Mexico, Arizona, and Texas, including creating the Electronics Industry Good Neighbor Campaign with the Southwest Organizing Project, Tonatierra, and Poder. We also begin a discussion on the creation of the Campaign for Responsible Technology and the growth of their work to address e-waste including the development of the Electronic Takeback Campaign and a campaign targeting Dell computers. Finally, we discuss the international implications of their e-waste work. Here's part three of my interview with Ted Smith, recorded in March. It's been a while since, since our original conversation. Thank you for agreeing to do part two. Yeah, was that, what, two, three months ago, something like that? I went back to look. It was like the end of December. Yeah. And uh, we talked for quite a while. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I remember. Uh, it was kind of fun. Yeah, it was. Okay, so a few things have happened since since we spoke at the end of last year. The main one I'm thinking about is the train derailment in East Palestine yeah. and the release of the vinyl chloride and many other chemicals or several other, I don't know if it was many others, but probably several to numerous others created by the burning of the vinyl chloride. And the brilliant decision to burn vinyl chloride. Yeah. So did this, I, I'm trying to think now, did the state agree to that? I guess they must have. The I, I don't I don't actually understand how that all happened. It just, I was just mind boggled when I read about that. Yeah. And the, you know, there's a number of pictures of, Obviously, if the enormous toxic cloud, cloud, yeah, yeah, smoke, it's. And how long have we known that if you burn vinyl chloride, you get dioxin? I think we've known that for a while. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. certainly EPA has known it. I would imagine somebody at Ohio EPA would have known it. So I was thinking about it this morning. I was going back and listening to our our previous conversation, and and we were part of kind of close to where we ended 
was talking about the importance of the technical assistance grants under Superfund oh, yeah. Yeah. and how that's been beneficial for organizations to have money for consultants and experts to essentially go up against polluting companies and their experts uh, when they're, you know, negotiating or fighting or whatever it is over or discussing, you know, possible cleanup methods and approaches and what have you. And I mean, Superfund has been invoked already for the East Palestine derailment as far as, um, you know, requiring the company to pay for cleaning up. And it's kind of remains to be seen what the scope of what they're going to be required to pay is. But I was just thinking there, I don't know if if that'll be an instance where the groups on the ground apply for a technical assistance grant, they're we typically called TAG grants in um, Superfund parlance. And if so, you know, if they'll be able to access those and how useful those will be. And then you and I were also talking about the idea of using something similar to TAG grants for, in, in sort of a preventive or prospective way for potential hazards that haven't happened yet. And the example we kind of referenced was the all the new chip plants that are going to be built under the CHIPS Act. So we're going to get back to the CHIPS Act kind of later in the interview, because that's what we started with back in December. But I just, I didn't know if you had any other thoughts or anything else you wanted to say about East Palestine or anything, you know, the TAG grants, fine if not, but. Well, I mean, one of the first things that occurred to me when I heard about that was that the the people in Ohio have really no idea what's coming with this new Intel chip plant that they're talking about. And the just at one level, the vast increase in chemical transportation that's going to be required there. They're going to be bringing in chemicals from God knows where, and it's either going to be by truck or by train, and they're going to be bringing them into the, the new facilities. But they're going to, you know, what's what are going to be the transportation routes? And, and you know, the, the track record of transportation accidents involving very nasty chemicals is not a very good record. I, I was just going through some of my old records myself when we were working on the toxic gas ordinance here back in the late 80s. And one of the things we did was to gather information about toxic gas accidents and other very hazardous chemical accidents in transportation. And there was a lot of them. There was actually a house hearing at one point um, looking at transportation accidents involving hazardous chemicals. So again, this is not a new thing. And one of the things that's discouraging to me is that, you know, it's it's almost a Groundhog Day type of issue. You go through something and you you think you learn some lessons and you want to get that information out to people so they won't continue to, you know, commit the same kinds of errors that led to problems in the past. And um, the the collective memory too often is just not there. And so they they repeat the errors, oftentimes without even knowing what the, what the uh, examples were in the past. On the other hand, there's another thing I was just reading about this morning, is that one of the other errors that people make oftentimes is that we are too often fighting, you know, kind of the last battle in, in trying to approach the new battles. And that particularly in the electronics industry, the pace of change is just so rapid that it's almost impossible for anybody to keep up with it, uh, much less for the government to try to get out ahead and regulate it and prevent it. And so I find that very discour discouraging and um, 
a, uh, a really serious problem that I don't think has even begun to be addressed. The idea of a tag grant to be able to anticipate future problems would be great, but <clears throat> the the amount of funding it would take to bring together all the expertise you would need to be able to do that would be vast. The management of all that would be, you know, incredible. It's just something that I don't think certainly our current government or any government I can foresee in the near future is is equipped to do that at all. And so I think it's kind of left in the hands of, of uh, activists, um, people who work in the nonprofit sector, people who um, are part of community organizations who are concerned about these kinds of things to try to figure this stuff out. But I, I don't see a, uh, an infusion of funds coming in to help get expertise to do that. We have to develop our own expertise. And of course, that's one of the other problems that we've run into repeatedly is that as things change, you have to keep up with the change. And the people who who understand what those changes are are almost entirely people who work inside the companies. And that unless you can find somebody who's willing to share with you what's actually going on and what their concerns are, um, you're, you're kind of left in the cold on the outside, you know, beating on the door, but not no one's letting you in. We, we've been fortunate in the past and occasionally running into people who have come forward, who have worked inside some of these facilities, who do have that expertise, who have seen the problems, who have been unhappy with the way they thought that the, their company management was dealing with them and have wanted to help out to be able to shed light on it. And when that happens, then um, it can be a, it can lead to a breakthrough. But that's my experience, not a very common thing to happen. And when that happened, that was in in different instances in Silicon Valley over some yeah. of these various sites that you were yeah. organizing around and doing work around. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, your point about the need for institutional memory, both, well, just anywhere, <laughs> any institution would be fine, government, uh, well, I mean, would be particularly helpful for governments, both federal and state, to have some institutional memory. There, You know, it's it, that just makes me think of... Um, it doesn't deal with everything, but the you know the U.S. Chemical Safety Board, Chemical Hazard and what is Chemical Hazard Investigation Safety Board, the CSB does have some of that to some extent. They're they're you know they make recommendations and they research the sort of root causes of different chemical accidents. So that covers one small part of it, but yeah, the the broader point of I guess the other thing is even if you have the institutional memory getting the railroads to, you know, adopt whatever the proper modern braking methods are or staffing methods are or lining their tanks. There's all the there's there's having the institutional memory and then there's being able to get the steps through that to apply that institutional memory in a way that ends up being effective and preventative, kind of like what you're saying. And particularly when you're always up against you know, massive corporate lobbying to protect the interests of the companies, which is, you know, invariably focused on short-term profitability. And so that's just inimical to planning long-term strategies. And I think that's, again, one of the key issues that I learned quite a long time ago, that we're always facing the pressure of the short-term versus the long-term. There was just a big story in the New York Times yesterday, I think it was yesterday, that talked about how EPA is now trying to promulgate uh, some new rules that would regulate more significantly, I think it was 10 different chemicals. 
And yeah. these are these are not obscure, <laughs> weird chemicals. These are ones that have been on our radar for literally 40 or 50 years. And they're right. still facing a, just a huge backlash of the corporate lobbyists saying, oh, that's no, going to shut us down. It's going to be a national security problem, blah, blah, blah. And, and you know, people are still buying that stuff. They're still still selling it. But they're spending millions and millions of dollars lobbying. And, you know, yes. what 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 can you do when after 40 or 50 years of knowing what the problems are and, and the, the solution is to just get rid of these chemicals and replace them with safer alternatives? And we're still hearing, hearing the same old story of uh, – and, and it's being magnified by this massive lobbying push. So, you know, <laughs> some things never change. Yeah, exactly. That's that was a story by Eric Lipton. Yeah, and I thank you. I appreciate your mentioning it because I'm. I'll link to it for the show notes. And he was talking about the. This is the implementation or the attempted implementation of the revisions to the Toxic Substances Control Act um, that took place in 2016. And EPA has been assessing these chemicals for the last six or seven years and have determined that most uses, these we're talking, like you said, about big name, highly toxic solvents, not all solvents, but mostly um, trichloroethylene, methylene chloride, carbon yeah. tetrachloride. I mean, the biggies. Yeah. Um, and and they found that they pose an unreasonable risk to human health and the environment, and that means that they it doesn't mean they are necessarily going to be banned for every single use. But EPA is required then once they make that finding of unreasonable risk to find some way to manage those chemicals so that the unreasonable risk is not there anymore. So there's no longer an unreasonable risk, including for vulnerable populations, people who are more highly exposed or who are more vulnerable like children and and uh, etc uh, more highly exposed like fenceland communities and workers for example so they that is going to lead and it should lead to like you said serious restrictions they have actually proposed a ban on asbestos at least um one type of asbestos so that and that's that's still a fight like you said that's been going on for decades and we don't need another shred of evidence to know, uh, no pun intended that, um, that, um, you know, that asbestos is deadly in very small amounts. So yeah, they've, they've launched a, and what's pretty funny is, well, it's not funny, but you know, the chemical industry was a huge supporter of the revisions to that law. They, they endorsed it. It passed Congress overwhelmingly. It passed the Senate by voice vote. Essentially every Republican member of Congress and almost every democratic member of Congress who was in office in 2016, in June of 2016, voted for that bill. So it's not, this isn't EPA coming up with some, not that they ever would, but some, you know, aggressive strategy on their own to, to clean up the environment. This is the, the, the bill that the chemical industry lobbied for a lot for, and now it's being implemented and they don't like it. And so now they're lobbying even more to try and prevent it from taking place. So, yeah. two, two quick responses to that. One is it. We may have talked about this before, but in, in the late 1970s, TCE was found to be a carcinogen uh, by government labs and testers and identified as such. And at that point, the Santa Clara Center for Occupational Safety and Health, based here in San Jose, um, started a campaign to ban TCE, and they took that to the California Standards Board. Um, they, they did not succeed in getting it banned, but they got the occupational exposure limit reduced um, considerably. I think it was from 100 parts per million to 25 parts per million, which for years was still the most stringent um, 
standard, even though it's nowhere near as stringent as the environmental standard for TCE, which is down in the low parts per billion. Um, so again, this is not a new issue. And, and the fact that we're still arguing about this is just absolutely preposterous in my mind. But the other thing about that story that I really brought back some memories was it mentioned the Halogenated Solvent Industry Association, HSIA, one of my favorite lobby groups. It's a lobby group, lobby group just in favor of a few chemicals that are made by their members. And, and that's yeah. their whole mission in life is to defend the market share for those chemicals come hell or high water. And, and we ran into them again back in the, oh, it would have been the early 1980s when uh, we, we, we were seeing a pattern in the electronics industry at that point to phase out TCE in favor of TCA, the so-called safe alternative, safer alternative. Um, but it's a kissing cousin. It's a, it's a halogenated solvent. It has all kinds of problems associated with it. It's both of those are what showed up in our groundwater when all these tanks leaked. And who, who shows up to lobby on behalf of TCA but the HSIA, the Halogenated Solvents Industry Association? And we actually got them to come to a county meeting. We had a, a thing called the Safe Water Council that was put together by Susie Wilson, who was on our board of supervisors, who was a real environmental champion at the time, and, and invited them to show up. And they did. And so we were able to grill them all about their lobbying efforts on behalf of these nasty chemicals. But it's just it's just shocking to me that these guys are still out there, still mouthing the same old, um, you know, <laughs> misinformation about how safe these things are and that uh, after literally decades they're still in business i mean that's that to me shouldn't happen <laughs> yeah and they're still it's same at the federal level you know they're sponsoring studies paying for studies that they yeah. say show no tce it's really fine and and it doesn't cause i mean the the now the the concerns about tce have actually grown right because now they've been linked to harming the, the hearts of children in utero. To protect from that, you would need an even stricter prevention and cleanup and standard. And of course they don't want that. So they're, you know, they're, they're fighting that. And um, yeah, they, they never go away. The, the Halogen and Solvents Industry Association never goes away. Yeah. One of, one of the main findings um, in the groundwater contamination issues here uh, in the early 1980s was a series of children born with heart defects in the neighborhood that was drinking the contaminated water, which was, again, had TCA, TCE in it, and a bunch of other chemicals too. But it was the heart defects that was really the, the thing that alarmed people the most. But the other issue that my wife, Mandy Hawes, who I think we've talked about before, is really focused on the neurological problems from these chemicals. And she points out that TCE was originally used as an anesthetic gas, because it had a very good property of knocking people out, um, which means going to the brain. And so when it when a pregnant woman is exposed to TCE and it crosses the placenta to get into the fetal brain tissue, as the brain is rapidly growing in utero, the, the implications can be, you know, disastrous for for many, many years. Um, if it doesn't lead to a miscarriage, it can lead to a profoundly disabled child being born, particularly with neurological deficits, which means, and, and we've seen, you know, situations like this, Mandy's represented families where the, the, the children of electronics workers are now in their 30s, 40s, 50s, and are um, so disabled that they, they require around-the-clock care. 
and and this is again, if if this were known um, widely, I can't imagine that people would allow this stuff to keep going on. But in the face of you know millions and millions of lobbying dollars, it's hard to get that message out. Yeah, that's right. I had one other thing I wanted to just touch on, uh, which I thought we had, but it turns out we hadn't. And this relates, you know, the one of the relatively surprising things, I think, in the last Congress, at least from a toxics perspective, was that the Superfund, uh, the Superfund tax, the, the tax on chemicals that helps pay for the fund that's used for cleanups at Superfund sites where the parties are not findable or solvent, no pun intended, was reauthorized. The tax expired in, I think, 96, 1996, maybe. And, you know, basically the chemical industry had successfully prevented from ever being reauthorized. And then it got authorized because, in part because it, you know, it's a, I mean, in part because it's a revenue raiser and and they needed offsets for, for whatever other spending the government was going to do. So now there's more money available for Superfund cleanups. All, all of that to say that the thing I want to talk about was in the 90s, as I recall, maybe this was earlier as well, there was sort of an ongoing, I guess, debate or policy debate, you could say, over how to do these cleanups when you have polluted groundwater that's you know in an aquifer or moving toward an aquifer, what have you, uh, which I know there's numerous of those in Silicon Valley. And there was sort of a movement, the, the kind of the traditional cleanup method would be what they call pump and treat, pump the water out from underground, treat it, strip out the TCE or TCA or whatever's in there, and then, and then re-inject the water back into the aquifer and it's clean or cleaner. And then there was this movement that's pretty expensive <laughs> to pump and treat all that water is extremely expensive and it's going to take a long time because it's just going to take, I mean, not maybe literally forever, but it's going to take a long time. It's going to be expensive. And under Superfund, the companies are going to be paying for that by and large, uh, the responsible parties for the pollution. And so there was this kind of movement for what was called natural attenuation, right. which was, oh, well, you know, no worries. We'll just... It'll, it'll, you know, it's going to, it's going to, um, not, not dissolve, but, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? You know, it's going to you know, sort of naturally diminish over time. And, and so they used to say a dilution is the solution to pollution, right? right <laughs> dilution. Right. And, and, and then, and then similar and related to that sort of, oh, don't worry, we'll just do natural attenuation was, you know, what they call institutional controls. And I'm, maybe slightly simplifying a more complex thing, but institutional controls is more like deeds that you shouldn't be on this property or fences to keep kids from playing on the property where the contaminated soil is. It's not a full digging out the contaminated soil. So that's that, so that's that if there's new building on that site, it isn't done with contaminated soil or kids can't break through the fence and play on it. It, it it's just, it's just sort of, it's just kind of keeping people out, but not really, doing a full cleanup. And I'm wondering whether that those debates arose while you were going at it with companies and EPA over some of the many sites in Silicon Valley or what your experience was around that, those kinds of debates. Yeah, we had a lot of those. Um, I'm just thinking of the probably the most extensive one was with the IBM pollution. IBM is was the largest 
tech plant here for many years in South, way down in South San Jose. And they had a huge, is a series of leaks there that, and the, and the groundwater table in South San Jose is pretty shallow. And it also moves pretty fast compared to other forms of groundwater movement. And it got off site pretty quickly. They did a lot of monitoring and they tracked it for actually, uh, I think it was two or three miles off site. And they began to realize that they could be doing this come hell or high water uh, forever. And so they decided that they wanted to try to uh, put a stop to it. And they filed for permission to stop their cleanup at a um, an area of South San Jose called the Edenvale Gap, where the, the, the underground kind of narrows and the plume comes together. So it actually moves even faster. But they, they said that at that point, they should be absolved of any further responsibility of tracking it. Because of that, it'll be diluted. Dilution is the solution to pollution. I see. And, and we, we opposed that and said, no, you caused this problem. you got to clean it up. You can't just walk away from it. And we got a hearing, a nighttime hearing, uh, uh, where the regional water board came to San Jose to hear this case. And uh, the Board of Supervisors and a lot of elected local officials were there. We turned out hundreds of people for that hearing. And we we thought we were going to get a pretty good resolution from the regional board. At, at the last moment, it turned out that we didn't. And so we then ended up appealing that whole decision to the state water board. Um, and again, they upheld uh, IBM's position that at a certain point, they should just be allowed to walk away from it. So it was a, a lot of energy went into that. It was a very serious debate, and we ended up not winning that. Now, admittedly, the levels that we were talking about were pretty low, and I, I don't remember what the, what the actual numbers were, but they were certainly well below the threshold for action levels. But nevertheless, they, they were there. I used to ask the question at public hearings, okay, if, if you're saying that one part per million is so small, it's insignificant, let me ask you this. How many molecules would it take at a one part per million concentration to cross the placenta during the first semester of pregnancy before it would affect the fetal brain or the fetal heart? And people would just freak out. They can't answer that question because they know it's, it's, it's tiny. It's infinitesimal, way, way lower than one part per million. So that was that was just one example. The other one that comes to mind is that you're talking about pump and treat. We used to call that pump and dump because oftentimes what they would do is they'd pump it out right. and then they just put it back in the streams. Um, or in, in, in Mountain View, at what was called the Mountain View Five, they had what they called aeration, and they would pump the water out and then they would shoot it up into the air through a, what looked like a I don't know a, a, a smokestack kind of a thing. And it would just go out into the air. There's no treatment at all. But again, dilution was thought to be the solution there. Well, it turned out that that device where they were doing the treating, and this was on a site that had Intel and Raytheon and a number of other companies. There were five of them all together that were responsible parties. And, and one of them later became the Google headquarters. And this aeration device was right at the Google headquarters. And when we started raising that, some of the Google employees started saying, wait a minute, this thing's right outside our windows. We don't want you spewing your, your toxic vapors into our, uh, our cubby holes. Um, so they finally did change that, and they, they then put in carbon treatment, which, as you say, is much more expensive. But, it, it, I mean, there was no – I mean, they could not withstand public 
pressure when when it was revealed that they were just pumping water and spewing it up into the air. So we 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 went through any one of a number of those, and and one of the big debates was always how clean is clean enough. And so we we and and as as you know, EPA has a couple of different levels. Is it for clean enough for residential re, reuse or, or industrial reuse? And it's it's a a more lenient standard if it's for industrial reuse, thinking that, well, there won't be children and old people there, basically. And so sometimes they would try to say, well, this will be only for industrial site, and then they'll use, turn, it, turn around and use it for something else. But all those kinds of issues are, you know, longstanding, and I'm sure are, are continuing in many other parts of the country right now. Yeah. the uh, <clears throat> Just thinking about that parts per million uh, point, the recent EPA health advisories for a couple of the PFAS chemicals in drinking water are at the parts per trillion yeah. level and single digits parts per trillion. So. Wow. It's just, you can't, I can't begin to imagine what that is. It's it's like how many, how many line widths do you have on one of these new chips when you're down to five microns? I can't, can't begin to imagine how small that is. Right. Tiny, super toxic, and of course, ultra persistent. Yeah, and mobile yeah. in the environment, so it's it's kind of a perfect storm. I think I had one other super fun related question related to this. I know I was just a point I was going to make again from our previous conversation. You made the point that a number of these companies spent, you know, up to or maybe even more than a hundred million dollars cleaning up the, and this is from the leaking underground storage tanks, uh, mostly. Yeah, you know that led to a lot of this contamination. And you made the point, you know, that could buy a lot of preventive action and containers or liners or whatever, disposal practices, research into safer methods, switching, you know, all kinds of things. Yeah. And that's it kind of picks up with the theme of uh, lessons that don't seem to get learned going forward. I mean, maybe they have been learned by some companies in some instances. I'm not saying it hasn't, nobody's figured that out, but you, you you know, there's, I mean, a lot of this PFAS contamination has happened subsequent to all the whole, you know, the sort of the golden era of Superfund, if you will, yeah, and, yeah. and still ongoing problems. So I wanted to um, uh, not shift gears exactly, but at a certain point, your work, you've focused and for a long time on Silicon Valley and all that was going on there. And then at a, at some point you started to branch out geographically. I mean, I guess you were branching out in the sense already of being part of the national toxic campaign and the super drive for super fund reform, which we talked about previously, but in particular, you, you started making connections with organizations and people in the Southwest. And that led to some important coalition building and, and activity. And I wanted to, if you could say more about that, talk about that a bit. Yeah, I, I would very much like to, but I, I wanted to mention one other thing about just the, the, the Superfund stuff. But, um, sure. At one point when EPA was looking at this one site in Mountain View, which we called the Mountain View 5, they estimated that cleanup there was going to take 300 years. And and I just, uh, that, that to me was just so shocking at the time, thinking yeah. our country hadn't even been a country for 300 years. And so you start thinking back of how long is 300 years? That's a lot more than seven generations. Uh, so anyway, uh, um, 
it, it's just another example of the the magnitude of the problem we're facing. And yes, if we could only figure out how to spend money rather than cleaning up bad mistakes into preventing them, what a better world this would be. But we haven't been able to figure that out. And as long as we can't figure that, it seems to me that if you can't prevent them, then at least the companies need to be made to pay for the problems that they've created, because maybe then that will become an internalized cost to them. And they will then then learn themselves in the absence of legislation. And that's that's, you know, an argument to be made for corporate campaigns as a, a, a an alternative strategy to a legislative campaign, because sometimes you can actually bring about change more effectively if you can get a corporation to change its behavior and practices. So those are just yes. a couple of other other points. But at, at the time when we were working on all these issues in the in the 1980s, uh, we began to realize that we were not alone in terms of of experiencing these kinds of problems and in terms of trying to figure out what to do about them. And we saw the industry expanding outside of Silicon Valley and particularly into the Southwest, um, into uh, New Mexico, Arizona, and Texas in particular. And we began to find ways of reaching out to some of the groups that were in those areas, thinking that they might well be experiencing some of the same kinds of issues and that they might be interested in, in learning from our experiences and what, what we've been able to do and what, what they might you know, need to be concerned about. And we also knew that there were significant environmental justice organizations in each of those three states and, and a national network called SNEEDS, the Southwest Network for Economic and Environmental Justice, which was made up of local groups all around the Southwest, including SWAP in, in New Mexico, the Southwest Organizing Project, Tona Tierra in Phoenix, Arizona, and Poder in Austin, Texas. And so we began a series of conversations with all of those groups to start figuring out if we can work together in, in a, a joint strategy to try to deal with, with common issues and, and develop common solutions. And we that, that evolved into a thing we called the Electronics Industry Good Neighbor Campaign, or EIGNC. And it was a formal collaboration between what we had as our emerging national network called the Campaign for Responsible Technology and Sneege, and then the local groups. So there, And there were four local groups. It was SWAP, Tonatierra, Poder, and Silicon Valley Toxics Coalition. And we did a, a lot, quite a lot of work together over uh, several several years. Um, it included the campaign to focus on Semitech, which was in one of the poor neighborhoods in Austin, Texas, in the Montopolis neighborhood. And we, we, we began a, a campaign to focus on Semitech because it was a a joint consortium of all the big U.S. semiconductor manufacturers located in a poor neighborhood in, in the Montopolis neighborhood of Austin, Texas. Um, and their their mission, uh, funded for several hundred million dollars by the Defense Department, was to beat the Japanese in the technology race. And we thought that since they were pooling their technical and financial resources, that that might be a good way to try to get them to also pool their resources to develop safer technologies. So that was the simple notion that we came up with. And so we had all these groups working together to get them to try to move in that direction. Um, we had a series of meetings with them and we're able to, you know, put our ideas uh, and agenda on the table, um, which they seem to take 
you know, reasonably seriously at the time. And they, you know, were, were a little bit befuddled in terms of trying to figure out a way of managing that relationship with us because, as they said in one of their meetings, the CEO said to their employees in a tape we later heard that we were a difficult group to deal with because we weren't just a single issue group of just focusing on the environment. We also focused on something that they referred to as work organization, which meant labor issues. And it also Mm -hmm. involved community poverty issues because of the the fact that they were in the Montopolis neighborhood and the neighbors there were saying, if you're going to be spending millions of dollars in our neighborhood, maybe you ought to do some neighborhood improvement too, because right now you're tearing things down. So it was a a, a good broad coalition and and they were, you know, as I say, a little bit befuddled on how to to deal with all that. But the the other thing that we did was we got Congress to uh, earmark 10% of their budget to focus on developing safer technologies and to address workplace as well as community environmental and social justice issues. And that was a shock to to many people, including us, that we were actually able to do that. It was at a time when Ron Dallums was head of the House Armed Services uh, Committee. And, and yeah. you know, he was able to stick it in and just got it through. So That's remarkable. 10, 10% of a $200 million budget is, is not chump change. And so that was, that was a, 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 I thought, a pretty significant victory. Chris, we were not smart enough to um, figure out how you monitored the implementation of that. And had we, we didn't get strict oversight that involved the people involved. And so, um, you know, it, it, it had some impact, but not what it could have if we'd been a little bit smarter in the way we tried to frame that. Yeah. But the other thing we did was we we realized that water was one of the big issues in every single one of the communities that we were living in and working in. And so we ended up doing a joint book together, which ended up being called Sacred Waters, Life, Lifeblood of Mother Earth. And it was four case studies from San Jose, uh, Albuquerque, Phoenix, and Austin. And in each case, we talked about what the examples had been with both water pollution and water overuse. Because as, as you know, one of the signature hallmarks of the semiconductors in particular is that they are very thirsty. They, they, they require massive amounts of water, millions of gallons of water a day. And so you not only have to find where that water is going to come from, then you have to figure out what you're going to do with it after you use it. They use it for rinsing and cleaning. And then when it goes through the process, of course, it has some of the hazardous chemicals in it as wastewater, and it is classified as hazardous waste, so you have to clean it up before you can do anything with it. So both of those issues were enormous, and they were front and center in all four of those communities. So we documented all that with community-based researchers and put this all together into this one book, which we've we've now put up onto the ICRT website. Um, And it's still pretty good pretty good data. And uh, for communities that are thinking about bringing in these new plants, it just seems to me like looking at water use, reuse, and what to do with the wastewater, where it's going to come from, where it's going to go, uh, is enormously important. And I don't think most of them have have a clue yet of what's really going to be coming. And the other thing that that was, you know, pretty obvious from the beginning was that it it is kind of crazy to put these water thirsty plants in the desert southwest where there's not enough water for anybody. And in New Mexico, they got into a big fight with the farmers who'd been farming their land using what they call the acequia system for hundreds of years. 
and and Intel's use of water was, you know, cutting into their water rights, and they were up in arms. And so there was a huge, huge fight there about this. And that's that's the kind of thing that uh, is going to be continuing to go on. And and Arizona is becoming more and more the the, the go to place. It's where the new some of the new chip plants are talking about going. And it's just right. crazy where they have the the huge fight now between all the different states in the Southwest over how to use the Colorado River, which is the source for many, many states. And it's been over promised to everybody. And so the, the, that fight is going to very much continue into the future. <laughs> right. Yeah, they're, they're, I guess they're building a, one of the new chip plants maybe outside of Phoenix. Yeah, yeah. And so all the issues that have already been presented may. We're, we're going to have to go back and redo the whole thing again. Yeah. Yeah. And so how long was that relationship with those groups? Uh, how long, sort of it, it went on for better part of a decade. Um, oh, long time. Yeah, it was a long-term project. And it led to, you know, many, many good and lasting relationships. And, and many of which are still ongoing. And it was a, a really good example for us to work with, you know, what was thought to be one of the very premier environmental justice networks in the country and right. got us involved in going to some of the environmental justice national summits. And, and you know, it exposed everybody to new learning experiences that was, I think, mostly positive. It was a, also very, you know, very direct culture clashes in some ways between, you know, Silicon Valley is, you know, the, the home of the, the techies and the, you know, the multi-million dollar homes and all that stuff. It's all true. And even, even though we have a huge number of people who live well below the poverty line here, what people think of is, is all the wealth. And, sure. and that's just not the case at all in these other communities, particularly where the tech industry was going. And so, it was both issues of, of racial equity as well as economic equity that were very much front and center in terms of all the strategy that we came up with. And just as an example, and this may be relevant to groups that are currently doing this kind of work, there was a, a concern from, from some of our local organizations that when we came around to doing a budget, that we needed to be able to compensate people in Silicon Valley at a level where they could afford to pay rent and which were much higher here than any place else. Whereas in the other communities, which had much lower rent structures and as well as, you know, all the other indices of standard of living with cost of groceries and everything else that you can live on a, a much lower salary. And, but we decided, no, we're not going to make those kinds of disparate decisions, we're going to pay the same amount of money to each of the local groups. And so some of the budget decisions became quite, quite interesting and, and politically charged uh, mm -hmm. in, in terms of working through some of those issues. And we, as I say, we ended up deciding um, that we were going to use as our own benchmark that was going to be equal payments to each of the organizations to, to do with us as they could. And, and, and that was just one example. There was a number of other important learning examples. Um, I, I remember one time there was a, a photograph that appeared in the um, Austin American Statesman newspaper after we had our meeting with Semitech, and it was a group of us. And, you know, we each, we each were at the press conference and each talked 
about what our own perspective was and what we thought of the meeting, et cetera. The picture that the Austin American chose to run was a picture of me gesturing and everybody else in the background. And afterwards, we we did a little get together to say, what did we think about all this? And, you know, there were people who were not happy that they they picked the one white guy uh, to put yeah. put out front on this whole thing when this was a meeting that was in Austin, Texas, talking about the plant in the Montopolis neighborhood. Why would the local newspaper pick this out-of-town big white guy to put out there to feature as the speaker? So, I mean, and, you know, it's, that's the way the media works. And, you know, I, I was embarrassed by the whole thing, but it was there, there was some learning lessons there, too. Yeah, that's... Uh, that's uh I, I mean i i don't know if that if you were early if you're if if um silicon valley toxic coalitions work uh you know not merging but working in coalition and you know allyship i guess you would say with those other organizations back then and that's in the 80s uh, mid 80s or late 80s if that's sort of a an early example of, of uh, early, I think, sounds like mostly successful or partially successful attempt to work together to accomplish uh, mutual goals. Yeah, I think it was. And, and you, you may remember that Richard Moore and a number of other environmental justice leaders wrote a letter to all of the big environmental groups, basically raising issues of race and class and saying, you know, if the environmental groups want to be successful, they have to diversify and, and not just be, you know, run by the same upper class white people who had been, you know, running the show forever. And it was a very impactful letter, at least from my perspective. And I think it, it not only shook people up um, and it ruffled feathers, but it also led to some pretty significant changes. And, and you can see that now looking back at the time it, it was kind of fraught, but it was something that a lot of people were paying attention to. We certainly were paying attention to it. And it was around that same time that we began to realize that we not only needed to uh, diversify our own organization, but we needed to start working much more closely with the environmental justice movement in other parts of the country. And that was one of the reasons why I thought that that, that whole effort uh, was was really important. And it just happened to be that it, the footprint of the electronics industry matched up very well with the opportunity to work with, with those groups that I mentioned. And so I thought it was very fortunate that we got a chance to do that. And I think our experience and um, what we had learned was, was helpful to the groups in those other, other areas too. And I think they, they were appreciative of that. So I think there was something in it for, for all of us. Right. And how did you first meet Richard Moore? I actually met him at um, the Poor People's Campaign in 1968, if you can believe that. Oh, wow. Really? Yeah. Huh. I, I was a VISTA volunteer, and and I was helping on the Poor People's Campaign, helping to build uh, some of the shelters that were going to be put up at the mall. And Richard came with the New Mexico delegation, with Reyes Tirina. And I don't remember exactly how it was that we – we met, but uh, it, it was at some, it was probably some gathering that somebody put together because there were a lot of people and I don't think we would have had a random encounter, but, but nevertheless, we did meet each other and, and were struck by the fact that we, you know, young and 
full of full of energy and you know vim and vigor and trying to change the world right now and so um we so that that didn't really grow into this much more detailed campaign joint campaign until later but but we did have that one experience and i think it it helped because we did have some sense of who each other was and realized that there could be a real benefit for working together right had you had you been in touch over the intervening 20 some 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 but not a lot because we we hadn't seen specific work that would could we could do together and it was the coming together around joint work projects that really made that into a successful collaboration. I mean, it just didn't come out of the air. It wasn't people getting together to have discussions about what they wanted to do in the world. It was, let's let's figure out how we deal with these similar challenges and what can we do to make it better. Right. And do you feel like there was some success in getting limits? Uh, so I, I understand you got the provision requiring the company or companies, the consortium to spend some percentage of their budget to develop safer alternatives on the, on the ground in those different places. Was there some success in getting either pollution prevention measures in place? Or, I mean, I guess you're saying there was also, it wasn't just the environmental issues that were part of the agenda. There was the worker agenda and the poor people's agenda. So in all those, in those areas where there, were there some, some things you felt that were you were able to accomplish that were successful in even a f- one or more of the I, I would say more so on the environmental issues than on the labor and community issues. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think mm-hmm. we probably talked about this before that the industry has always been very anti-union, taking the position that they just cannot coexist with unions. Um, so that's been a very there's been with with the one exception of the building trades when they're building new facilities but in terms of the workforce itself inside the factories completely 100% non-union but on the environmental issues particularly on the water side much more so than on the the chemical side and the production side i i think that there has been some significant not only awareness but also a lot of effort has gone into figuring out how to clean up the wastewater to, to the level where it can actually be reused. And so water reuse has become a, a big issue and continues to be. And particularly in, in dry areas of the Southwest, it's, it's an essential. And so I think that they really did help to spur some of that research and some of that energy. And, and the, the, the company started making some progress with, in, in that area. And again, they, they ran into such community opposition, particularly in New Mexico, that they realized that if they wanted to be able to continue operating even, um, partic- and particularly to g- continue to get uh, local government subsidies for, for building new facilities, they were going to have to address some of the community concerns. So I would say that there were, was some progress there. How much of that was directly attributable to what Semitech did? I don't know, but I think it, it, it certainly helped because it, it did focus attention and helped to focus some of their research. And I think they ended up taking it a lot more seriously. Okay. So I want to now talk about the campaign for responsible technology and the evolution of that into the international came for respo- campaign for responsible technology and the e-waste issue, which I, I'm not sure exactly when that emerges, but I have one, <laughs> one question I don't want to mm-hmm. forget that actually goes backwards 
is, and I don't want to take us off course, but I thought of one other thing because I was thinking about it this today. So one of the first things we talked about, and we actually just referenced it a little bit earlier, was the leaking underground storage tanks that led to the contamination of the groundwater in Silicon Valley and, and many other places around the country. And that led to the leaking underground storage tank program, which I, I can't remember if that was included as part of the Superfund amendments, but there is a federal EPA program to require testing and replacement of leaking underground storage tanks. Yeah, yeah. It's LUST is the is the sexiest yeah. toxics acronym ever. And I'm just wondering whether you know if anybody has continued to track the implementation of that program, the success of that program. I know it still exists, but I, I myself don't know, you know, who is the who is the person you know, you know, a lot of issues in the, at least in the toxics movement, there might be one or two people who, who yeah. are the people who know that issue, right? And I myself don't know who is the lust person, meaning liquid, le- leaking underground storage tank person. Do you know, or have you followed that at all? I I, I don't know, and I haven't followed it oh, in, in quite some time. I, I do know that when we developed the the model ordinance here on hazardous materials, it required not only the monitoring, much more diligent monitoring, but it also required double containment, not only of the tanks themselves, but of the piping leading up to it. So that became kind of the 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 guts of the, the ordinance in addition to the right to know provisions. And then those provisions were adopted in California through a bill that came about the following year. And then it went to Washington and it did get incorporated, but I don't, I don't even remember the details of how much they required on the double containment of the underground tanks. I, I think it's there, but I, I haven't really followed that. What I do know is that we followed up the leaking underground tank ordinance with a toxic gas ordinance, and that also required double containment of the gas cylinders and the piping coming into it. So the same kind of model. And that has not been adopted around the country. And and the fire chiefs are continue to, the local ones anyway that we worked with, are continuing to be disappointed in that because um, that's going to be another issue coming up with with uh, some of these new chip plants. What, what are they going to do to protect the communities against accidental releases of some of these toxic gases, right. which can be, as you know, catastrophic. Yeah. And so I, I think that my, my own experience, and this is something that, I thought was, you know, a pretty important learning lesson is that it's possible to make things happen at a local level. And then occasionally you can actually bring that up to the state level. Right. Jumping from a state level to the national level is is a big lift. Yeah. And that, you know, if you can make that happen, that's great. It oftentimes doesn't. But even if you can make it happen, it's oftentimes not as strict or as strenuous or as robust as what you get at the lower level of government. And so um, while I say that our efforts have been, you know, a model in terms of going from the local to the state to the national at each stage, it it becomes the, the farther you get away from the local issues, the local community, the actual local people who, who care about this stuff and know about it, uh, the more remote it gets and the, the less, less robust it becomes is my experience. That's interesting what you say about the firefighters, at least locally still being concerned about that. The firefighters, I think, continue to be a very, you know, influential, what would you say? An influential group of people. They're influential 
as you said, when we spoke previously, they're widely respected, they're impactful, and they're on the front lines of a lot of toxic exposure. So they have a lot of, yeah. of an important role to play for everybody. You know, they're sort of the classic workers who are most at risk from exposure more yeah. than the general population yeah. and protecting them protects all of us. I'm remembering now you clarified last time we talked about this, I mentioned again, hazardous waste coming out of the storage tanks and it's really more of a hazardous materials, hazardous materials, slightly different than hazardous waste. And it's an important distinction. Yeah. And, and, you know, <laughs> something doesn't become a hazardous waste unless there is initially a hazardous material involved. Right. And so if you can solve something at the hazardous materials level, you don't, you don't have to worry about the hazardous waste. That's always seemed to be, the the the, the long term strategy that everybody agrees on it's it's but but people get so focused on waste because that's oftentimes what they experience what they see right. and you were talking about e waste before that's that's why e waste has become such an important issue not only all around the U S but all around the world right. because it's so visible and it's something that's in everybody's experience yeah. and I used to when I would go to talk to a group of people I would I would say raise your hand if you have your own e-waste stash in your house of stuff that you don't know what to do with. And everybody would say, yeah, yeah, I got a drawer, I got a box, I got the basement. So it's something that people are very familiar with. But if you didn't have the hazardous chemicals that were embodied in that old old computer equipment and old phone equipment, then it wouldn't be hazardous waste and then you wouldn't have to worry about it. So let's get it out in the first place. Right. So um, It's logical. Yeah. So oftentimes what, what's most visible and what gets people the most upset is while it's, while it's really important, it's not really where the solutions lie. Right. Um, the solutions lie upstream. Yeah. So tell me about the campaign for responsible technology. And did that, was that, I guess the creation of that just, I, I think if I'm right in my mind, that sort of predates the emergence of e-waste as an issue that then CRT and ICRT take on, but maybe I'm, I don't know. So I'm interested in both. Actually, it's, it's a good question. And I'm, I'm trying to remember now. I do think that the origins of CRT began before we began to focus on e-waste, but they're around the same time. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was for similar issues, similar reasons. We, we started forming CRT because we were looking for allies in some of our issue campaigns. And we realized that the industry was spreading out to other parts of the country. And we were trying to find people who would be sympathetic or knowledgeable or have, again, an interest in working together to help solve these interests. And so, again, we looked at the, the high-tech centers we were working with with groups in Oregon, for instance, because that was another place that people started, that the industry started moving to. But but our closest ally in some of this was in Massachusetts, because that was another high tech hub from almost the beginning, the Route 128 up there, right. and there was a mass high tech network that came together um, with uh, people who have become lifelong friends, everything from labor organizers to uh, occupational health safety, environmental groups, academics, et cetera. So they had a pretty robust network of their own. And so that became a, a kind of a cornerstone of, of putting this whole thing together. And then, then as we mentioned before, folding in, working with the, the people in the Southwest, which became the real go-to place for so many of the companies. 
And and so CRT was and and we thought it was pretty clever to call it CRT because it was the same acronym for the cathode ray tube. And so anybody who was paying attention, you know, kind of would would see that and notice it. You know, we did we did uh, several campaigns together in addition to the Semitech campaign. We we talked about uh, quite a bit about how do you integrate workers' concerns with community concerns, and how do you push the debate, you know, up the the ladder from focusing on waste to focusing on products to focusing on materials, yeah. and and going up the, the hierarchy of um, uh, concern, and and so there was there was quite a bit of activity going on with that, and then and then at some point. I, again, realizing that the the industry was starting to move away from Silicon Valley, and that the the issues that we'd been working on were therefore also beginning to not that problems weren't disappearing, but the the companies as the focal points were gone, mm-hmm. and so we began thinking what what would be another key issue that we could continue organizing on to continue focusing on the industry, continue focusing on the hazards as well as the workplace practices and community impacts of the industry. And we thought e-waste is is a good way to do that because again, it's something that everybody knows about. It's a, it's a uh, a frustration to most people because there aren't very good solutions. And we thought that if we can organize a, a new network, which originally we called the Computer Take Back Coalition, and then eventually became the Electronics Take Back Campaign, mm-hmm. because we wanted to go beyond computers and include phones and, and televisions and other other kinds of electronic products. And that became a, a pretty robust national campaign with groups all around the country becoming part of that. One thing that we did, which was, I think, very uh, we were very fortunate to get some funding to develop a communications plan for the whole campaign. Mm. And we got some very good research from uh, Good Jobs First about how to focus the campaign. We were thinking at the time that maybe what we should do is focus on the retail stores uh, that were selling all this stuff and saying, if you're going to sell it, you got to at least take it back mm-hmm. for free mm-hmm. and properly recycle it. But the research led us to believe that and, and the reason we were thinking of retail is because there was the, the forestry campaign at the time that focused on who was it? It was one of the big lumber retailers. And now I can't, can't even remember the name, mm-hmm. but it was, they, they, they focused on consumers buying lumber and saying no growth, no old growth lumber. Oh, yes. And that was, a, that was a fairly successful campaign that did it. So that was a kind of our framework. Yeah. But the research by Good Jobs First persuaded us that it would be a better strategy to focus on one of the companies itself uh, and do a leaders and laggards kind of a campaign. Mm-hmm. And what we were able to determine was that Dell at the time was the sales leader, but the environmental laggard oh. in terms of their take back programs. And so we, we chose Dell as our main focal point for that campaign. And we ended up doing a couple of things that really got their attention. Um, Michael Dell, the president and founder, was giving, we found out, was going to be giving a speech at the Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas, mm-hmm. uh, which is an annual event every January. Yeah. And so we showed up at that event and we brought, and oh, and we learned that Dell was using prison labor to do their recycling. 
and that you know at the time HP was using union labor in their facility uh, up outside of Sacramento. Mm-hmm. So we did a report called a Tale of Two Systems, which compared and contrasted Dell and HP. And so we showed up at the CES conference to confront Michael Dell with a bunch of canvassers from um, the Texas Campaign for the Environment dressed up as prisoners on, and <laughs> pat, pat, and padlocked to, to old computer parts and saying, Michael Dell, you know, we're, wow. <laughs> we're, we're, we're tired of, of um, being sent to prison uh, for protesting your policies. And then when we get to prison, then we have to recycle your, your old crap. And, you know, and it, that, that went out over the wire services with a photo of the, of the protest. And, and it was pretty shortly after that, that Dell decided that this was something that maybe they better pay attention to. Um, the other thing was that the Texas campaign for the environment um, went over to a, they, they did a fashion show at the fancy clothing store run by Michael Dell's wife and they dressed up in e-waste costumes. And so, and they picketed out in front of her store and that they were just outraged. Anyway, we ended up having a, uh, actually what turned out to be a very productive meeting with Dell mm-hmm. through all that. And, and we'd been able to talk with a guy who'd been the first president of Dell, who later became a big philanthropist in, in Austin. And we were introduced to him by some of our friends in Austin and we were able to say, what what can we say to Michael Dell to actually get him to pay attention to this? And he said, the only thing he will ever care about is market share. And so if you can persuade him that if they develop a program that helps increase their market share and bu- builds customer loyalty through a, a, a better take-back program than anybody, anybody else, that will help them increase their market share. So that was the argument that we used mm. when we met with them. And it actually seemed to work because uh, within a fairly short period of time, they did go from being the worst laggard to having one of the best take-back programs in the country. And so that was all, again, based on good research, good organizing, good networking, and, and a, a, a campaign that was, you know, had had people in various parts of the country all involved. The other thing we did was to um, start working on uh, legislation, mm-hmm. uh, take back legislation in the states. And we worked with a number of state organizations and, and ended up helping to get legislation passed in about half of the U.S. states mm. that were a variety of take back programs. They were not the, you know, cat's meow uh, in all of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was some, but we came up with a model piece of legislation and it was adopted with some variance in, in 25 states, as I recall. Mm. So that was, that was, and people said, why don't you do a national law? Because then everybody will be under the same rules. We took the position that that was probably not the right way to go at the time, because if we took it to Washington, we knew it would get watered down. Yes. Kind of what we were saying before with, with some of the other pieces of legislation. Mm-hmm. And, you know, either things go to Washington to die or they go there to get watered down into the low, lowest common denominator. And and so we, we actually um, resisted that. There were other efforts, some by industry groups, to get a national platform because these different state laws were driving them crazy. Right. They had to comply comply with ABC in in one state and DEF in another state and XYZ in a third state. And and that was a pain in the ass. 
And, and our feeling was, well, if it's enough of a pain in the ass, maybe they will eventually come around to internalize the practice themselves nationwide. Yeah. 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 And, and, and not, not resist a, a national legislative effort that would dumb it down, but to put it up at the high standards. Right. And, and this was all related to the other really is, important issue with, with e-waste, which was the, the export. Right. And that we were involved in 2002 with uh, the Basel Action Network in uh, producing a report called Exporting Harm. And it was tracking how e-waste that was collected in the U.S. ended up being shipped to China, where it was being burned uh, and creating just horrible uh, problems for the r- local residents. There's a little town there called Guayu that became the the recycling capital of China. And recycling is too nice a word for it. Jim Puckett and his staff went over there and actually got video of what was actually going on, where literally they would burn the wires to get burn off the plastic to get to the metal, which they could then recycle. But as we were saying before, with the vinyl chloride and the train accident, when when you burn plastic, you get you get dioxin. So they were poisoning their own communities without knowing what they were doing. They were uh, and just all kinds of other just horrendous experiences. Anyway, we documented all that and we we uh, got that out. It turned out that the U.S. was the biggest holdout from adopting the Basel Ban Treaty. It's a U.N. treaty that prohibits wealthy countries from shipping hazardous waste to poor countries, which is seems like a pretty pretty darn good idea. Yep. But the U.S. the U.S. At that point, and even till today, has still resisted, you know, signing on to that treaty. And so we we are not part of that treaty. It is not illegal in, in many places in the U.S. to ship. So there are a number of other efforts that, that have tried to prevent that, including certification. There's two different certifications out there right now, one run by Ben and another run by another group that has as part of their requirements that you not ship hazardous waste, uh, hazardous e-waste abroad to, to poor countries. And so there are, you know, some efforts. In that. But again, there's there's no national legislation. There's no global treaty on that. And so it continues to be an issue that is, uh, uh, I would say, improved, but still unresolved. The Toxic Avengers podcast is produced by me, Daniel Rosenberg. You can visit our website at ToxicAvengersPodcast.com and follow us on Twitter at ToxicAvengerPod. If you like the show, please tell your friends and leave a review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever else you're listening. Send your feedback and guest requests to ToxicAvengersPodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned for the next episode of the Toxic Avengers Podcast.